Accreditation is a status that's earned, not given. Our featured BBB Wise Giving Alliance accredited charity seal holders for this episode are Zero Prostate Cancer, USO, Statement Arts. To find out more about these and other BBB Wise Giving Alliance accredited charity seal holders, go to give.org. You're listening to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor, powered by BBBgive.org. Here we explore the motivations that form the basis of giving and service. We inspire generosity and celebrate the transformative effects that giving and service have on the human spirit and on community. The conversations featured on the podcast also uncover giving strategies that educate and provide tools to help listeners make impactful gifts of both their time and money. We hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Heart of Giving podcast, powered by BBBgive.org. Give.org is the nation's standards-based charity evaluator, and it's your one-stop source for information on giving and reports on the most asked about charities. I'm Art Taylor. Today, our guest is Dr. Karen E. Knudsen, MBA, PhD. Dr. Knudsen is the CEO of both the American Cancer Society and the American Cancer Society Cancer Action Network. She is an internationally recognized oncology leader, healthcare executive, and advocate. Under Dr. Knudsen's leadership, the American Cancer Society adopted a tripartite strategy to improve lives resting on the pillars of discovery, advocacy, and patient support. Prior to joining the American Cancer Society, Dr. Knudsen was the Executive Vice President of Oncology Services for Jefferson Health and the Director of the Sidney Kimmel Cancer Center one of the elite National Cancer Institute-designated cancer centers in the U.S. Dr. Knudsen is well known for her practice-changing discoveries in prostate cancer, contributing to new effective cancer treatments. Dr. Knudsen, can you tell us about yourself and your journey to becoming the CEO of the American Cancer Society? Sure. Thank you for asking the question. You know, I, I absolutely love what I do, and it's an honor to to lead this incredible organization. It was a bit of an unexpected journey. I am a scientist. I will always be a scientist. And I, I started off in life in oncology research, just being very interested about how to connect science to improving lives. I ultimately became the head of oncology for Jefferson Health here in Philadelphia, my home city, which is Grew to become a 16-hospital system across two states, so I was in charge of both cancer research across the organization as well as cancer care diagnosis down. And I, I very much enjoyed the ability to connect those two. You know, how is it that the challenges that patients are facing out in the community associated with prevention, detection, and cancer cure, how can those problems be taken back into a laboratory and solved for? And then solutions put back into the community setting is really what, what drives me as an individual. And so I, I loved what I did. I thought I would be at Jefferson Health my entire career. 
And I was so proud of what we had been able to do in the greater Philadelphia area. But all along the way, the American Cancer Society had been a great partner for me. When we needed a little bit of grant funding in order to test, to pilot test an idea that had an opportunity to improve a life, the American Cancer Society was there. When we felt that we needed to act at the local or state or even federal level to tell a patient's story about an obstacle that could be solved through legislation or, or a policy, and we wanted to, to lean together to advocate, the American Cancer Society was there, especially the Cancer Action Network, which is the advocacy arm. But then I think the part of, of the American Cancer Society that really touched me the most was the everyday patient support. When we had patients who couldn't make it to care because they needed a ride or they needed a place to stay near the cancer center or they needed unbiased information about cancer or their caregiver needed to be educated, the American Cancer Society quite literally linked arms with us every day to get that done. So, so I had this through the entirety of my career, incredible affection for the American Cancer Society, which is frankly why I took the call when they came looking for a new CEO. And I was just so delighted that they thought of me and, and it's an honor to lead. Can you provide us with maybe an overview, because I know there's so much going on, an overview really of the American Cancer Society's mission and, and the work it does, as you mentioned, to support cancer patients and their families. Yeah, it's, it's really a differentiator of the American Cancer Society. You know, we, we see our stakeholder as the patient and the caregiver, and we are concerned with every life and concerned with addressing every cancer, understanding that there are 200 different diseases that we call cancer. So we've got a lot of battlefronts to fight. So what do we do every day? Our mission is to improve the lives of cancer patients and their families. And we do that every day through research. We are the largest funder of cancer research outside the U.S. government. But that's not enough. The other two arms of the American Cancer Society are advocacy and patient support. And those two arms are intended to ensure that these breakthroughs that we fund through cancer research actually get to people. And the advocacy arm does have operations in all 50 states and at the federal government level so that we can push for policies and legislation that enhance access to care in a single day, sometimes affect change for millions of people. And then the patient support arm I talked about with regard to Philadelphia, we have a presence in 5,000 communities across the country doing what I call the basic blocking and tackling of eliminating the challenges for someone getting exceptional cancer prevention and cancer screening and, and cancer care. You know, everything from working to set up prevention and screening programs in medically underserved areas of the country to, again, giving the rides to transportation, 32 Hope Lodges across the country where we house cancer patients and families near cancer centers free of charge. And, you know, something that really is game changing is quite, quite literally life saving. So, so the everyday, we are improving lives through research, through advocacy, through patient support. But what drives us, you know, we're always thinking, you know, we're, we're a business like any other. We're just a business of doing good in the world, right? We're not for profit and our funding goes right back out into mission. But at the same time, we have to think about what does success look like? When do we know? What are we really striving for in any given day? And it's important because when we're thinking about choosing between two different options of something that we might do, 
we have to think about, okay, well, if they both improve lives, what's the thing that's going to get us to what the end game looks like? And that's ending cancer as we know it for everyone. Eliminating the cancers that we can and making the others that are right now significantly contributing to you know mortality in the country a, a manageable disease. We know we will not be able to prevent all cancers, but what we can do, and I think we're seeing this in some cancer types, is we can make some cancers just manageable and ir- irritating, but manageable. Well, you mentioned a Hope Center. Tell us about it and some of the other keynote sort of programming that you do that we should all know about. So the Hope Lodges are really special places, and this is an area where we are growing. We know we have 32 right now across the country, and they are incredibly special places. So a Hope Lodge is for a cancer patient and their caregiver to stay throughout the entirety of care. Some patients stay more than 200 days. And there are special places because the caregivers and the patients can connect with each other. It becomes a very family-like setting. If you imagine any family, the magic happens in the kitchen at the end of the day, right? Where people are creating a meal. Well, imagine what it's like in a Hope Lodge with multiple families. You know, our biggest Hope Lodges have 67 rooms. So up to 67 groups of people in the large kitchen areas, the end of a long day of chemotherapy, radiation therapy, making dinner, connecting with each other. Invariably, there's one patient who's just started that day and is really just struggling. And another who's on the other side of it, who's been through that chemo regimen for five weeks and can give guidance to either the patient or their caregiver. And these connections and bonds are very important. We we hear this all the time from the cancer patients and their families about how critical this connectivity was, not just for the physical understanding what's coming, but the mental health of the individuals going through. So that's just one example of what happens in a Hope Lodge. But it's truly a safe place for someone to stay close to care who really needs that option. And the need can come a lot of different ways. We let the oncology care teams or the patients themselves identify need. It can be financial, can be logistic. It can be because they, they, from a mental health perspective, need to be surrounded by people like them. It can be because they're immunocompromised and they just frankly need a safe place to stay that's not like going in and out of a hotel, which could compromise them. So that, you know, I'm very proud of what we do at Hope Lodge. And, you know, everyone on my team knows when you're having a bad day, if you need to feel good about the world, you go and you volunteer at the Hope Lodge. It's a great thing to do anyway, but it'll be one of the best days of your life. It's also the place where communities come in. You know, here in Philadelphia, we have people volunteering regularly to make dinner for cancer patients and families in the Hope Lodge. It's just an example of the kind of thing we do that I think is is life-saving. But there are many programs that we're running regularly. You know, the rides back and forth to care. We give 250,000 rides every year back and forth to care. And that being able to show up to the chemotherapy unit all five days of the week instead of only three because you didn't have a ride really is a difference maker for people. It, you, you will not have the same outcome if you, if you can't get to care every day. But the, the advocacy solutions are sometimes the most stunning. And the, one of the ones I want to make sure I mention because I'm very proud of this, is that starting in January 1 of 2024, we will have realized a dream that we have been advocating for for years, and that is patient navigation. So that will finally become a reimbursable component of people's care team. So what is a patient navigator? 
a patient navigator is, and we've, we've funded research in this area, so we know the impact through our cancer research funding. Patient navigators help quite literally navigate someone through the journey. So someone who is navigated understands their care more deeply, is much more likely to complete their cares plan because it's very Byzantine. Labs, then imaging, then radiation therapy, then chemotherapy, here, there, everywhere. And so the, the navigator quite helps people through this Byzantine frequent flyer journey that is cancer care. They're much more likely to have a better outcome. They're not going to land in the emergency department and they have an overall lower cost of care. So it's one of these scenarios where all boats rise, yet it wasn't happening. So we took the data from the cancer research that we funded. We took the experience from the patients that we work with. And by the way, right now we fund patient navigators across the country and, and took that into a cogent, rational argument to say, look, everyone wins when there are patient navigators. So let's go. So working with the White House, working with CMS, we were able to make this a reality. So January 1, it's going to be a game changer for cancer patients in the country. And we are so proud. How cool is that? To do all of this, you must have a network of stakeholders, researchers, organizations, and others that you work with to make all of this happen. What does collaboration mean and how do you go about it at the American Cancer Society? Yeah, great question. Collaboration is everything. You know, we have 1.5 million volunteers every year across the country who help us get the work done. Volunteers who help at the Hope Lodge, who give rides, who help us raise funds. Need, I mean, we're a charitable organization. Everything we do is a significant investment for us. Even just the Hope Lodges, each Hope Lodge is a million dollars in operating cost every year ish for us. It's about 32 million I need to raise every year just to keep the Hope Lodges running. But we do it because we know it makes a difference because we know it improves lives and because we know it's key to ending cancer as we know it for everyone. I'm incredibly thankful for our volunteers. We're trying to make it as easy as possible for anyone who has had a cancer journey or cares about alleviating the burden of cancer for them to volunteer with us. It's something you could do once a month once a year or every day. We have that variety of options. We're also very thankful for corporate partners. You know, that that's an important key stakeholder for us, for communities, because the impact of what we do is so, is so visible, so real for people in the community. We're very thankful for community partnerships, but we also work within communities. So one of the things that we recognize is an issue is that not enough people are having their cancers detected early when there's a better opportunity for a positive outcome. Screening is not where it needs to be in this country. We've known that my entire career, and that's a tough nut to crack. And we also know that there's some medical mistrust in various pockets around the country and also a lack of access to cancer prevention and early detection. So one of the new programs that we lifted up underneath our chief diversity officer, Tawana Thomas-Johnson, whom I think is just one of the most amazing human beings I've ever met, is something called Health Equity Ambassadors. They are people who are key stakeholders in communities. They might run the Boys and Girls Club. They might work for the mayor. They might be the mayor. They might be someone who is very active in a church or temple within a particular community. 
We've trained 2,400 health equity ambassadors this year alone, 2023 alone, and empower them with information about their community. Example, Community X, you have a significant smoking population and smoking-related cancers. Let's talk about what it would look like for the community if smoking cessation became more widely implemented. Let's talk about the fact that we now have screening for lung cancer for people who are smokers. Here's what eligibility looks like. Here's how we can help people get into screening. We will not end cancer as we know it for everyone unless we stop just diagnosing people with advanced disease and move to this earlier in disease course. Early detection is, is absolutely key. So, so we're, this is just an example of ACS, the American Cancer Society, thinking differently and engaging, to your point, partners, in this case, key stakeholders, key trusted community people across the country, and empowering them with information, tools, and dialogue to, so that we can help people get into prevention and get earlier cancer screening. And now it's time for our Giving Tips segment with Bennett Weiner, one of the world's most renowned experts on charity accountability and the COO of the BBB Wise Giving Alliance. One of the alternatives to making a cash donation as popular is donating items to charity. It could be clothing, furniture, anything that you may have in mind that you want to make a contribution of. If you do this, number one, contact the charity to see if they accept those donations. Not everyone does, and see if they already have a mechanism to make that possible. The other thing to keep in mind is that when you make a donation, let's say of clothing, for example, you're going to get a receipt from the charity verifying that you gave a gift on a certain day, but the charity is not going to tell you the value of the gift. That's up to you, the donor, to recognize that value come tax time. And what that value is, is what such an item would typically sell for in a thrift store of its organization. And to find out what that is, you can look at some charity thrift stores online and see what those items typically go for. So you can have that. Also, find out about how the charity is actually going to use the gift. Many of them will resell these items in their own thrift stores to help raise money. In some cases, they may be used for other purposes, but you need to find out from the charity itself how they're going to use it so you can feel confident that the donation is going to be used in a manner that you're comfortable with. But as you think about the challenges associated with the, the mission that you have to end cancer as we know it, what are some of the biggest challenges that you face making it uh, what you want it to be? Well, as always, resources are always challenging. When we look at the funding, like right now, we have at any given time, $435 million in cancer research funding. And we are funding the high-risk, high-gain research that's not likely to get funded somewhere else because it has an opportunity to improve life. You know, we're watching what's happening in D.C. right now with the proposed budget of the National Cancer Institute and the NIH and very concerned about what will happen when we see declines in cancer research funding. It's a real issue. The high watermark for cancer mortality rate in this country was 1991. And since then, we've had an overall decline in cancer mortality of 33% since that high watermark in 1991. And we can tie that to cancer research and investment in cancer research. So we're, we're very concerned about that and concerned about how we can make up for the gap that the government is going to have in cancer research funding. You know, the U.S. had long standing been the leader, the thought leader 
in cancer discovery through scientific research. And that's under threat right now. I, I really honestly believe that we are putting at risk that next generation of bright minds who are going to have the next brilliant idea for prevention, detection, and cure. And so, you know, so that's, that's an issue. But some of our biggest challenges also come with accessing those breakthroughs. So the, the social determinants of health that are still a major issue across the country. We are highly focused with every program that we lift up to ensure that we are solving for known cancer disparities. And so ensuring that we solve for those is in part why we have the, you know, the patient support and the advocacy arms. But we have so much more to do. If I can just give a quick parable, let's just take an example, let's drill it down. Let's talk about prostate cancer. Prostate cancer will account for almost one third of all new cancers of men in the country this year. And the heartbreaking story of prostate cancer is that if it's detected early, there's almost a hundred percent chance of cure through radiation or surgical intervention. That's it. Uh, we can cure early stage prostate cancer, but the data tell us that we're not, we are not detecting cancers early enough. And that prostate cancer has you know, sat on this throne of being the second leading cause of cancer death of men in this country. More than 30,000 men every year are going to die of prostate cancer in the U.S., unfortunately, needlessly, because their cancers were caught too late. And the shift is awful because what we see for all men is a 5% increase year over year of diagnosis at more advanced disease. So it's getting worse, not better. We know we can cure early stage disease. There's this massive shift to being detected at late stage for which we have no durable cure. So it's bad overall. And the overall screening rate for eligible men is only 33%. So we start off from this really bad place for all men. And, and, and we know it. And we just need to be able to have a concerted effort to raise awareness and do something about it. And then finally, let's talk about the disparity there. It's the largest cancer disparity in all of oncology. So let's just compare, there are multiple disparities, geographic and demographic, but let's compare black and white men. Black men have a, despite similar screening rates, so this is not, cannot be what's underpinning it, black men have a 70% increase incidence of prostate cancer compared to white counterparts. Why? Still have to understand that. We don't understand prostate cancer risk for all men overall. Lots of research needs to go there. We're desperate to do more. That increased incidence is a problem. And then mortality. Black men have two to four times the mortality. Two to four times. This is unbelievable. Two to four times the mortality rate of any other demographic for prostate cancer. So if you just take this one disease, say, you know what? This is an issue and we've got to deal with it. We've got to deal with it at the research issue because we need to understand these disparities. We need to understand it at the advocacy issue because we got to have better ways to get men into screening. And we also need to understand it from the access to care issue because certainly access to quality care is impacting these different types of outcomes that we're seeing in prostate cancer. So that's one of those cancer types for which we raise the alarm bell. There are others for which we are ringing the bell of victory. Uh, you know, cervic cervical cancer is one of them. Like we, like we actually can end cervical cancer as a country. We just have to get behind vaccination because we can prevent cervical cancer and other HPV vaccinations through a vaccination against HPV. And so these are the kinds of things we're thinking about. The challenges are very different in the different cancer types. So yeah, you, you opened up a lot with that question. I hope I hadn't been on too long there, Art, but that's really just, I want to give examples about 
the kinds of things that we're facing and how we set priorities or these cancers that are going sideways or going the wrong way. You know, I, I wanted to just give you a chance to talk about some of the success stories that you've experienced as the head of the organization. What are, what are some of the things that you've done that the organization has done that you might share as examples of the days when you can leave the office feeling really good about what you've done? Thankfully, I have that as much as we have the sense of urgency to do more. I feel that way every day, literally every minute of the day we are doing good in the world. One of my 3000 employees is doing good in the world. So let me give you just three quick examples. You know, on the research side, we have a long history of picking winners. Our science and the science we funded has directly tied to FDA approvals of new oncology agents that have been life saving and life extending. So incredibly excited about that. Just as an example, we have a history of picking winners early on and getting behind early science when no one else believed it. Do you know our, we have funded 50 people who went on to go win the Nobel Prize? Most recently, Dr. Carolyn Bertozzi from Stanford, who won for chemistry last year in 2022. And her um, discoveries on click chemistry underpin new ways to do immunotherapy for cancer. And so like we're, we're, you know, those days we're like, ah, this is incredible. We really are doing a great job doing that high risk, high gain selection of science. On the advocacy side, we talked about having patient navigators become a reimbursable component of care starting in January. But the year before that, you know, January of this year, we successfully advocated for full reimbursement of colonoscopy after someone tests positive at home with an at-home colorectal cancer test. Prior to January of this year, you had to pay out of pocket for your colonoscopy if you tested positive at home, because now the colonoscopy was no longer screening. It was no longer a prevention strategy. It was diagnostic. So that's a problem. So eliminating nonsense barriers, we literally affected the lives of millions of people just that one day. So proud. And on the patient support side, I mean, we touch 55 million people every year in patient support. It's incredible. So that's one where it's every minute someone's being navigated. Every minute someone's on our call line or 24-7 chat line getting information about cancer. Right now, as I'm talking to you, someone's checking into a Hope Lodge. Right now, as I'm talking to you, someone's getting a ride back and forth to care. It's an everyday evidence of the impact of what we do. Well, just talking about your role in particular, you know, I think about the American Cancer Society as this massive philanthropic organization. And it has a leader, which is you. But how do you lead in an organization of this size? How do you make your leadership felt and known and appreciated so that you can actually get things done? Yeah, I appreciate you asking that. I actually don't get asked that very often. I have an incredible team. So I have chiefs who I've asked them to, you know, really act like the CEO or they're part of the organization. You know, my, my chief science officer runs everything that we do scientifically. And I, I want him to run his team in a way that we can measurably improve lives. Same with our head of patient support, my chief patient officer, he does that as well. So we have a very clear strategic plan. We measure everything that we do. You know, I am a business person. I came from healthcare. So measuring impact on patients is what it is that we do. And so ensuring that everyone at the organization, like if success for me as CEO means that all three 
3,100 employees at ACS, irrespective of where they are, because we have this large distributed workforce across the country, that every single person who works for me knows how what they do on any given day improves a life. That includes the people who like plug in computers. You know, they, they need to understand how it is, what, what they do improve the life of a cancer patient and the family. And if they don't, then I'm not doing my job. So just ensuring that we are all focused on what is our unique value proposition? What is it that ACS can do through research, through advocacy, through patient support to improve a life? And when we have to choose and make strategic priorities, which we do, I'm a big believer in integrated strategic and financial planning every year. And when we have to make those choices, what is the thing that we are best positioned to do that is going to have the greatest impact and we will measure it? And so that's really what, even when you look at the science that we fund, we measure it based on whether or not it has a potential to be paradigm shifting and practice changing. On the patient support side, does it solve for cancer disparity? Is it, how many lives will be touched? If we can run two different prevention and screening programs, how many different lives will be touched in each? Which one has the greatest need? It's the way that we measure everything that we do. And and the same was true of advocacy. I wonder, I mean, most of us have had some personal connection to cancer, either because we've had it or we know someone who's had it. And I just wonder, in your case, has a personal connection influenced your work and your dedication to this cause? No question. I've always worked pretty hard. (laughs) Uh, This job's no exception. I get out of bed every day because I feel like I am driven to make a difference for cancer patients and families. I'm like everyone in this country this year, one in two men and one in three women will get a cancer diagnosis over their lifetime. So my family is like every other. My brother is a cancer survivor. My mother and her entire family have all had the same kind of cancer. And I have, of course, like everyone, had family members and friends who have not fared well from cancer. So I I am driven to do something different. But I would say also, it's not just friends and family. It's the everyday patient that I meet it in as a scientist and also in healthcare. There are those people that you meet, the patients that you meet, meeting with patients every day, but the ones that really stick out in your mind, if there are these two patients that I absolutely, patient survivors, that I absolutely love. One's named Lou Lance and the other's named John Bueller. They're both here in Philadelphia. And I don't think that they would mind me talking about them. We call each other the A-team, along with one of my uh, former executives at, at Jefferson. And we, we have a running text chain and we, we speak to each other almost literally every day by text. When there's a Philadelphia Eagles game, we talk to each other about every minute. We call each other the A-team because we've always supported each other. And, and you know, when I when times are tough and I'm thinking through gosh, this is can be demoralizing when you're not making the progress that you want. I talk to these guys and I think about them and I think about the impact of what it is that we do and how that's going to affect Lou and John and their families and the people who are like them. It keeps you going. We have a lot of work to do still. You know, we hear a lot about technology and its ability to transform the way that we live, work and play. And more recently, we've discovered the power of artificial intelligence and particularly uh, generative AI. And I just wonder if you see 
that these technologies can play a significant role in helping us get to your objective at the American Cancer Society? And how might we be deploying some of these technologies to to get there in the future? And other thoughts you have about the future? Well, AI is going to change everything. It's going to hit every aspect of our ability to improve lives. Right now, we have a number of initiatives going on. One of the things that I do with my team, because we are a large distributed workforce, I, I, I change where our executive team meeting is and every month. And we, we also change where our board meeting is. We actually just had our board meeting. We were hosted by Microsoft in Seattle and had a really good set of discussions with their chief medical officer about how they're incorporating AI to enhance health. And then we actually have a meeting next week to talk about partnering toward that end and incorporating things. For example, if you think about our 24-7 call center and the chat line that we have, it's often the first place people call when they get cancer or if they have a question about how to get to care or about the cancer type that they have or Maybe it's a young woman who's interested in oncofertility. You know, how does it, she preserves her fertility before she gets into cancer care? Very disparate questions that we get. How can we use AI to make sure we get them to the right specialist first, you know, so, so that we can get people quickly to the information? And we're pretty good at it in a manual way, but can we do even more? Can we reach more lives if we do it? That's some of the things we're thinking about. Patient navigation. We actually already have a little project that's going on with Google Cloud right now to think about how it is that we can use digital strategies to help navigate patients. We're the Switzerland of cancer care. We have no vested financial interest or any other interest in where anybody gets care, just as long as they get quality cancer prevention and quality cancer care. And I think AI will help us there. AI inevitably will also be tied into the studies that come to the American Cancer Society, the research studies that we're asked to fund. And so we need to make sure that we are at the tip of the spear of understanding how AI will change everything. And our chief information officer, Ricky Cook, is just fantastic and you know, has always got his head in the game about where this is going. But I would also say we have to be careful about disinformation and combating disinformation. We already battle this a lot on some social media platforms, including TikTok, where there's just bad information out there about cancer prevention and cancer screening that we're consistently having to debunk poor information. And, you know, can we use AI to make sure that people are getting the right information? That's really key. Back to who our key stakeholders are, patients and caregivers. We must I will never fix healthcare. I can never make it perfect. But what I can do is I can empower cancer patients and their families to have the right information, ask the right questions, and put themselves in the best possible position to navigate a cancer journey. So what advice do you have for our listeners? You've given us a lot of information today about your work and how you go about it and success stories. What advice do you have for, for our listeners today um, who want to make a difference in the fight against cancer or support those who are affected by it? Absolutely. Well, I would invite everyone to go to cancer.org. Uh, all information is there about cancer prevention, about cancer screening, about the 200 diseases that are cancer and what to expect. Also about cancer survivorship. You know, there are 19 million cancer survivors in this country and they all have specialized needs based on, you know, the, the ramifications of treatment that they had. So please go to cancer.org. It's got your one-stop shop, everything you need to know. It also provides a portal to volunteer. 
there are so many ways to give back, whether that is giving a ride, working at a Hope Lodge, joining us officially as one of our 1.5 million volunteers. I promise it will be the best thing that you do in terms of impact for, for cancer patients and families. And so I would invite people to do that. But on a personal scale, if I could wave a magic wand, or I would say that every person, the next time they go to their primary care physician, for whatever reason, to get their flu shot, should ask one question. What is the right cancer screening plan for me? Don't wait for someone to ask you. Ask them. You know, your cancer screening plan is about much more than your age. It is about your family history, your genetics of risk, if you know it, and your uh, overall personal history, your exposures, for example. So this is a complex set of things that you're going to want to discuss with your provider, but develop that plan. Because if there's one thing we know about these 200 diseases that are cancer, it's that early detection is essential for a positive outcome. Well, you've been listening to Dr. Karen Knudsen, who is the CEO of the American Cancer Society. And Dr. Knudsen, I just want to thank you for agreeing to share this information with us today on this podcast. And I hope that you will continue to stay in touch with us so that as new developments occur or as more information that we need to know comes out, that we can broadcast that here on the show. I just think that what you're doing obviously is life-saving. And what's more important is that it's providing hope to people who have been afflicted by this awful series of diseases, as you call them. And I just thank you for your commitment to making us all better and making us all hopeful about what we can do to end this. Yeah. Thank you, Art. I really appreciate it. Happy to come back anytime. And these are the kinds of things we need to do more of to raise awareness if we are going to end cancer as we know it for everyone, which is our goal. And to all of our listeners, if you're here for the first time, you may know that this is a weekly podcast, and I hope that you'll check in again. You can subscribe to the show by going to any major podcast platform. Also, if you're interested in making a gift to the podcast, you can do so by going to give.org and we'll put that money to great use. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next week. You've just listened to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor. Be sure to tune in next time for a brand new episode. To listen to our other interviews, visit heartgiving.podbean.com. That's heartgiving.podbean.com. Subscribe to our show on major podcast platforms. The thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are the views and opinions of the guests, not those of the BBB Wise Giving Alliance or program affiliates. This podcast is for information and educational purposes only and is copyrighted with all rights reserved. This podcast is protected by Podbean's Terms of Service.